an A&E original podcast. You know, in my early days, I, I, I smoked the joints, sniffed the cocaine, drunk wine and stuff like that. You know, you could either have like just a good trip or you could have a real bad trip, but you were going to have a trip. For me, I always wanted to be in control of what I needed to do. I didn't like the way it made me feel. I just never wanted to be that type of person where I lost my mind and wasn't in control of anything that I was doing. I survived the crack era. I would like to say unscathed, but uh, I know it's it's taken a few things from me. Um, but not my ability to rap, not my ability to think, not my ability to love, or my ability to live. So I'm still here. 90-something percent of me is still here. So that's what's, <laughs> you know what I mean? In this episode, we navigate the unique and sometimes difficult relationship between mind-altering substances and creativity. We speak with historian, journalist Jeff Chang, MC Chief Rocker Busy B, and the first female rapper, MC Shah Rock, with the focus on substances or drugs or medicine, whatever you want to call it, as it relates to the history, culture, and politics of hip-hop. Born in the Bronx, raised in the streets from coast to coast and worldwide, these are the stories, the moments in time, the places and faces, the origins of hip-hop. Hosted by me, Grandmaster Kaz. Drugs are a part of our culture, especially American culture. On the one hand, we have the pharmaceutical industry offering up anything and everything to calm us down, perk us up, help us sleep, ease the pain, and alter our brain chemistry for better or worse. Then, on the other hand, we have alcohol and tobacco, fully legal and regulated, but with almost no recognized medicinal benefit. And beyond that is a long list of fully illicit substances. All of these categories are subject to abuse by the people consuming them and the people selling them. This is not a simple issue for our culture, for our legal system, and for the health of our country. Now, when we look at it through the lens of hip-hop, we have to consider all the angles. And the best place to start, as always, is the beginning. So let's take a look and a listen as we dig into the high. No, no, no. The high. (laughs) Drugs and music. Experienced both separately and together are two constant threads in the tapestry of human culture. But hip-hop deserves special attention, considering how differently it's treated in this context. Going back to the Bronx in the late 70s, we find a community struggling with heroin addiction. The hip-hop scene that was just bubbling up did not celebrate drugs in the way that later artists would. Hey, I'm Jeff Chang. I'm the author of Can't Stop, Won't Stop, a history of the hip-hop generation, and the co-author of Can't Stop, Won't Stop, a hip-hop history with Davey D, my man. You know, I think hip-hop, you know, in its earliest days, there was an aspect of it which was very much like anti-heroin, you know? Um, you know, and and so you can kind of hear it in the music. It, the, the music of, like, the early breakbeats are up-tempo. Right, so then they're, they're the types of stuff where 
like you're you're about to get in there and, and really get with it, right? So if anything, like people are are you know rocking with malt liquor and all that kind of stuff, you know maybe a, a spliff or two, but it was very much against you know the stuff that would slow you down. Right. In fact, most lyrical content was shaped towards highlighting the social ills. Melly Mel's famous white lines, Don't Do It, serves as a prescient warning for the era that was to come. Ironically, Melly Mel was supposedly high on cocaine when he recorded this famous track. As hip-hop grew in stature and influence throughout the 1980s, the artist was still struggling to make money. Those who attracted major label interests were often subject to unfavorable deals. Meanwhile, drug dealers were climbing up the socioeconomic ladder if they could stay out of jail. Both worlds represented a viable economic path for communities with little opportunity. And so, they became intertwined. So we chopped it up with Chief Rocker, Busy B. So B. Yeah. What did the drug scene feel like in the early days of hip-hop? The early days of hip-hop was tough because we had the cocaine and the, the marijuana was always there. But the cocaine played the part in our beginning. Well, for me, in the beginning, it played the cocaine because that was cocaine ruled at that time. It was like the rich man's high and everybody wanted to be the rich man. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it played the role in our culture as well because a lot of the DJs and certain MCs fell into that. I believe in that that quotient that it was the rich man high, and it, I guess it made you leap tall buildings in the single bound at that at times, <laughs> you know. I think you could. <laughs> Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. What we see is as we move into the 80s and cocaine starts to come in, you know, the, the uh, with electro pop and that kind of stuff, techno pop, what they called it on the West Coast, and electro is what they called it on the East Coast, I guess. The tempos speed up and the beats get really crisp and like hard edge. It's drum machines. And I think that you can, you know, there's a way to kind of talk about that. And, you know, it's just accelerated. And there's a way that you can relate that to cocaine coming into the nightclubs and uh, coming into the U.S. Cocaine was a big part of the scene and was a huge presence in the 80s in general. It was a ubiquitous part of the party culture. When, when hip-hop went indoors, right, like to clubs, like the Fever era, Cocaine became very prevalent. Right. Um, Because we was in the the nightlife now. When we was in the parks, it was weed, it was um, um, 40s, or it was quartz first. It was quartz first. And then quartz got so goddamn popular, they made them into 40s. Yep. You know, so it was like weed, tray bags, or nickel bags of weed with the seeds in them. You got two 40s. All right. And then that was pretty much, that was your high, that was your day-to-day. Now, once you, you know, you move into the nightlife and you going into clubs and stuff, that's when cocaine came into play, you know, for me especially. Right. 
In the early days of rap music, as far as hip-hop is concerned, before it moved on to records, um, when we did live shows, we big-upped everything that we pretty much did. If we played ball, we talked about it on the mic. If we were, if we liked girls, if we were good with girls, we talked about it on the mic. If we smoked weed, we talked about it on the mic. And during that early part of hip-hop, when cocaine got involved, yeah, we talked about that as well. Okay, so uh, yeah, a few of us did make references in hip hop. Crack was a whole nother animal. You know, as crack takes over and the tempo is really slowed down, and then there's this sort of edge, right, that comes into the music of almost like violence. And that's sort of the era that we kind of enter into in the, in the 80s. When crack came along, that was just the next evolution. It was like, okay, well, let's try this. Nobody knew it would lead to a, an epidemic, uh, and it would fuck up our lives, mine, for the next 10 years. And, and the way it affected the communities, it was the same way. I mean, people were drawn into themselves. They, they're away from society because, n- number one, the shame of, of being a crack addict, and just that I don't give a fuck about nothing but crack. That, that was the, you know, that I remember being a part of that mentality in the early days, you know, experimenting with it. And then once you get involved with that, it's like you don't care about anything else. And crack tore a hole through our communities worse than the Cross Bronx Expressway. Okay, it had divided a generation. We are missing a generation of knowledge, wisdom, lessons, and all that passed down from gener- because of that crack generation, that missing generation due to the crack epidemic. So we definitely saw a major shift and a lot of us found ourselves trying to put ourselves back into not just hip hop society, but normal society. While crack took a hold of the inner city, so did the rise of the dealer turned rapper. Biggie, Jay-Z, and Eazy-E all leveraged drug dealer status as a badge of authenticity. It also gave them financial flexibility to kickstart their own careers. So we picked it back up with my girl, Sharrock. You know, they talked about it. They told you what was going on in their community. They were saying, look, this is what I'm doing. And a lot of people could relate to that and a lot of young kids could relate to that because they saw it going on in the communities all the time. So it was normal, you know, for um, a rap artist or a young artist to see what was going on in their corner and to have a rap artist talk about it. It it brought life to them. And once again, you know, people, you know, that's one thing that people don't understand when it comes to rap music. The conversation changed and hip-hop. It started being geared toward gangsterism and toward drug dealing and the streets and, and not just passive conversation. I'm talking about they got into depth about the details. I mean, there were details on how to make crack and how to sell crack and how to cook coke into crack and all kinds of conversation. And you, you could tell it was leading us down a dark path. A lot of times they rap about what is going on in their community. 
And unless you in that community and you don't know, you looking at it's like, oh, that's bad. There's no reason why they should be talking about that. But they telling you their life. They telling you this is what I'm living. This is what I'm surrounded by. This is what I'm living. I'm not just talking about it. I'm living it. I see what's going on in my community. And this is what I'm trying to tell you. So when you on the outside looking in, you look at it like a bad thing. But this was real life for a lot of people that had no idea that this is what's going on in the community. With this movement, lyrics were less about getting high and more about the fruits of drug dealing and a general business savvy. This could be said to mirror the beginning of the CEO mindset era, where financial prowess began to dominate hip-hop culture. Again, this narrative is one that ties directly to power and can be seen as a direct response to a Wall Street-driven form of capitalism that simultaneously dominated white America. Rap music and MC and hip-hop culture, you know, we were young entrepreneurs with little or no resources. You know, no one, you know, in, in our communities was helping us out. We tried to figure out a way, you know, to bring something out of nothing, right? And I think it was the same thing far as drugs, you know, or, or them, you know, people selling drugs. Now, everybody out there could say, you know, that's wrong. We shouldn't glorify it or whatever. But that's the truth. That was what was going on in New York City. And I'm, and I'm quite sure it was going on in any major city around the world. Because if that was a way for, you know, young teenagers, you know, to capitalize off of making money and and bringing their families out of, of poverty and, and, and everything that was surrounded around them that was bad, this was a way out for them. So people out there could say, no, it's wrong, we shouldn't glorify it, but that's what it was. It's the truth of what was going on at that time in those inner cities. This was a way for, you know, young teenagers, you know, to get it, to get ahead, to make something out of itself, to, to help their mother and father pay bills, you know, to live in a way where you may have not had the city, you know, taking care of them or the state to taking care of them at the time. It was a way for them to get up out of what they was into at that time. It was a way of life. The High Times. Golden era hip-hop shifted the narrative. West Coast aesthetics were becoming more dominant. Brand name Weed was taking root in California. In 1996, the Smoking Grooves tour kicked off. On the one hand, this was a seminal moment for hip-hop, the first commercial tour package that was built exclusively around hip-hop. A huge step. On the other hand, the marketing was unambiguous. This music is thematically anchored in drug culture. Cypress Hill, known for bringing a massive bong out on the stage, was the headlining act. Suddenly, drug use wasn't taboo, it was just marketing. You know, in the early 90s, you get a group like, unlike any other, like Cypress Hill comes in, right? And they're starting to talk about marijuana. And there's a way that that really, like I was living in LA at that time, and when Cypress broke, like, it was on these, like, inarticulate levels because there was a way that everything was just so surreal and facts were so hazy on the ground. And just things could, like, you could either have, like, just a good trip or you could have a real bad trip, but you were going to have a trip because everything was, like, going... After the uprisings, everything was sort of, on the one hand, like, beginning to become clear, but still very, very foggy. And then that gets sort of commodified, I think, in the 90s where, you know, with the chronic, then it becomes something that you can actually package. And during that particular period, there's also, a, you know, fixation on like a lot of hard liquor 
And this is like not so coincidentally the time where hip hop is really beginning to blow up in the marketplace. And a lot of these brands, liquor brands, are like, oh, actually we can make money off of this type of stuff. So there's a way that the chronic, Dre's the chronic packaged all of that stuff up and made it accessible to folks who might have not been into hip hop before, but they're club goers. So they, you know, suddenly, wow, Hennessy's the cool drink, right? Because like Shock G and Dr. Dre have made it cool, right? Or gin, gin and juice, whatever it's gonna be, right? And I think that that's like the period that we moved through from the mid 90s all the way into the 2000s is like hip hop sort of embrace of commodities of, of drugs and alcohol as commodities. The vibes were good, but this more progressive era stood in opposition to some of the underlying realities of the American legal system. Black people are still overwhelmingly paying the price for this country's love affair with drugs. In the trap. In the early 2000s, a new form of hip hop was on the rise. In the sweltering South, Stripped-down beats and woozy lyrical formulations were born in stash houses and drug kitchens. Trap rap is clearly the most drug-centric form of the genre. Maybe this was a rejection of golden era and new soul movements towards social justice and inclusivity. It was also more raw and visceral than the gangster era. This music came from the street dealers. Uncut. What you think about, you know, the gangster and trap rap culture and the way they talk about drugs as an extension of well, hip-hop? See, that whole culture, if you really pay attention to it, it's a six-month course because you're a star for six months and uh, the rest of your life you go to jail. Expound on that. Because they, 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 they talk about, some of them probably actually doing it. They squeal on themselves, really. Yeah, yeah. Say, hey, John, we're going to make this short and sweet. Here go the song. Listen to this song. <laughs> <laughs> so, case closed. 40 years. That's right, fella. 40 years. <laughs> Want some more time, buddy? <laughs> Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Streets to Big Pharma. Mirroring the shift in drug culture in the country at large, Lean and Xanax have become the cultural markers of hip-hop in the last decade. While creating a hazy, semi-coherent bedroom production aesthetic, this is hip-hop at its most internal. At the same time, this genre is more straightforward about mental health struggles in music. In the wake of, you know, this sort of flooding of the marketplace with pharmaceuticals and opioids, um, there's there's a way in which, and also uh, in this period where we're also in another period of massive change, and the tempos reflect this, like a real need to kind of slow down, simplify, and really try to like get into the murk of what's happening now. 
Um, I think now is another time that feels like, you know, the the turn of the 80s into the 90s where it's not so clear what the answers are or what direction we're going to head in. Um, and maybe it's, maybe that's the kind of thing that, that uh, you know, drugs now and, and hip hop now are trying to fulfill for folks, right? Like, man, things are moving way too fast. Let's slow this down, right? Let's like, let's narcotize ourselves and like kind of be like looking at this, you know, from, from a, a, a distance. Let's get some distance from this world in which everything is kind of collapsed into each other and I can't get out. I think ever since the beginning of hip hop, we've been talking about drug culture, um, celebrating it in the sense, um, right. and in in a way you could say promoting it, but not the way they do in music today. Not during that cocaine era, not right. not during that gangster rap era, not during uh, this new era of uh, with the scissorb and the and the pills and all that. You know, they are literally oh, promoting crazy, this kind of lifestyle. And and um, culture, right? What do you and and our generation like think about a big farmers' um, involvement yeah. in, in hip hop and the lean and the Xanax and all that fueling yeah. hip hop nowadays? Yo, homeboy, I'm telling you, I wouldn't have never thought of no shit like that. You you to say and to say it like really, yo, right? And because I, I'm saying that now, like we trying to guess people off Percocets and shit like that. Molly Percocet. And, and I'm waiting for a rhyme to like, why are you saying it? But then there's nothing but a beat and then you back to Percocets. Molly Percocets. Like, <laughs> yo! Legalize it! Weed is legal in 18 states and Washington, D.C. It's a billion-dollar business that leans heavily on hip-hop culture and branding to sell its product. Many artists from the hip-hop spectrum have lent their name to custom strains. Snoop, Run the Jewels, and many more have a financial stake in the industry. Counterculture has become mainstream. What does it feel like to see cannabis becoming legal and even part of, like, corporate marketing right now? Man, I couldn't wait, Don't Cash, because, again, you know how long... We, we just really talked about how long we've been doing it, right? We, my ass, you, you. Let's well, talk well, well. <laughs> how long you. See, I, <laughs> I you know, I've been doing it. I've been smoking weed for probably as long as you, but not as right. much. Not for, you know, not the quality and, and see, of and it. And I've been trying to learn how to do it. Right. You, you right. You right. Because I was trying to be a professional. Or sold it on the level that you have. So you've been involved right. in the weed business. Right. You know what I mean? Underground or on the low before it became corporate. Right. The landscape is changing. People are monetizing off this industry in a crazy way. We're seeing huge corporate investment, entrepreneurs of all levels. It has transformed from cultural stigma to economic stimulus. It's a new reality and a complex one at that. I learned how to grow it all of a sudden now, and I got fascinated with that. So I went that route to where now I'm in the cannabis business, just like you said, I have my own strands. I, right. I mastered it very well. <laughs> I smoke like a broke stove. Okay, let's, let's say that. Uh, do I smoke too much? Um, that's up to me to decide whether I smoke too much or not. All right? Maybe I do, maybe I don't. But um, there's a time when I had the high smoking. 
all right? Uh, most of us did, and I wasn't as brazen as most. So, you know, I was like a closet smoker. I'd go indoors behind something or whatever. But now, I live in a state where I don't have to hide anymore, and neither does anybody else. I live in a state where I don't have to worry about, uh-oh, here comes, you know. Nah, it's, it's just as free as somebody lighting up a cigarette, as it should be. Also, I find it interesting that nobody mentions alcohol, which is pretty much the most lethal and legal drug that there is. More people die from the from alcohol-related things, from car accidents to fights to domestic abuse, and it's it's taken so many people out. But alcohol is perfectly legal to this day. There's no crusade against alcohol since prohibition, or tobacco for that matter, which is interesting, isn't it? substances to escape. They use them to explore. And it's easy to go too far with this exploration. Trust me, I know. Experimentation can lead to abuse. And for some, there's a point of no return. While drugs have been used since the beginning of time in all walks of life, you can't put this drug thing on hip-hop. And everyone has their own individual idea on what might be a drug or what might be a medicine. And while there are still people serving time for possession of a substance that is now currently legal in a state in which they were arrested, now this is crazy, okay? This is bananas, and it's a complex issue, all right? There should be a continual discussion. We got to keep talking about this. You can't sweep this under the rug, all right? And I hope this conversation continues and moves in a positive direction and we see some results. At the end of the day, that's what we want to see, results. This is the Origins of Hip Hop. And don't miss the Origins of Hip Hop television show only on A&E. Go to AETV.com for information on how to watch. This episode is hosted by yours truly, Grandmaster Kaz. Produced, written, and edited by Bennett Barbaco and Rob Amjarv. Written and produced by Clay Seneschal. Our associate producer is the lovely Emma Damakash. And executive produced by Bennett Barbaco and Larry Adam. And for A&E, this episode was also produced by Aisha Jordan. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn. And executive producer is Jesse Katz. And we out. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 